Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Maternal mortality is widely acknowledged as a general indicator of the overall health of a population, of the status of women in society, and the functioning of the health system. We live in a developed country and spend a large proportion of our resources on healthcare, yet the United States ranks at the bottom of developed countries when it comes to maternal mortality. With the right approach and support, most maternal deaths are preventable, yet we see the number of deaths rising over the past several years, with 658 deaths in 2018, 754 in 2019, and 861 deaths in 2020, the most recent year we have data for. The most recent rate equates to 23.8 deaths per 100,000 population, disproportionately affecting black women two and a half times more. For comparison, the top performing countries like Norway, Italy and Poland have just two deaths per 100,000 population, placing the US rate 11 times higher. This is not a failure to access healthcare services, but more of a mismatch of the services provided that women are using for themselves, and as we have discussed previously, on behalf of their extended family as the Chief Health Officer. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Tessa Kirby, a Senior Manager at ECG and leader of the Women's Health Service Line who is helping executives rethink their women's health strategies to keep up with the market demands and trends, and Vicki Lucas, who's the Principal at Vicki Lucas LLC and the Women's Health Business Consultants. Vicky is one of the foremost leaders in women's and children's health, serving on boards of many major women's health organizations. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Tessa. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Nick. So we're talking women's health. We're talking um, uh, the failure, essentially, of society to focus on women. They've essentially underutilized, under uh, accessed the healthcare system. Is it going to improve? Well, can I correct you just quickly? Women utilize more healthcare services than men and spend more. So it's not that they don't utilize, it's just that it's a mismatch or of what they need and what they are given. So just know that they do utilize more health services, but our outcomes are not any better, nor are the services matched appropriately to what women's needs are. 
I, I think great point. And in fact, in one of the previous episodes, one of the prevailing threads that we got to was women as the uh, chief health officer for many families. They are, in fact, the major purchasers, uh, accessors of care, in fact, directors of care, not just for their, you know, their children, but also the extended family in many respects. So great point, Vicky. My apologies for, for the error uh, of, of the question. I think I'd also add to that that I think we're in a renaissance of, of women's health right now. I have 1.3 billion in funding over the last year, the biggest area of venture capital funding. Um, there's just a ton of, of change and opportunity being recognized in women's health care, and it's really unprecedented. So uh, it will be interesting to see how those op opportunities open up and allow for actual real change to happen in this space over the next few years. So, I, you know, you use an interesting term, Tessa, that you talk about renaissance, you know, large amounts of investment. There's a part of me that sits here and says, well, great, we've seen lots of investment in lots of other things, but actually not a lot of movement. I'll pick telehealth, although maybe that's changed at this point. But, you know, we, we've seen lots of investment, lots of good intent. What's different about this time? I mean, women are dying, right? I mean, that's what's different here. I mean, the the disparities between white women, black women, different races of women as they experience maternal health is 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 a really crucial issue. And I think it's becoming more and more important to health systems and to society to say, this isn't okay anymore. And we need to figure out ways to fix this, that mm -hmm. women have the right support during childbirth, before childbirth, during childbirth, after childbirth, to make sure that they're having a good experience through this and they're frankly living through this and that that's equal across all strata of society. Mm -hmm. I agree. In fact, uh, we know that the health of women and children really determines the health of a society. It's a public health measure. And we know in the United States, we're doing fairly poor, well, very poorly actually as a civilized uh, advanced nation, so to speak. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, light being shown on it. Uh, the women are, and particularly the younger women are researching and are more empowered consumers. And so uh, I believe that this renaissance is going to become the new normal and that you will see long-term change and measurement and accountability. The other thing from an economic perspective, economically, it makes sense. Not only is it the right thing to do, and obviously it's gonna improve the health of the nation, but economically, uh, we are uh, spending a lot of money and having poor outcomes, which is unacceptable. So as we move more towards value-based care and accountability regarding outcomes, uh, economically, it makes sense to do the right thing right the first time and therefore improve the outcomes and uh, decrease the duplication of services, or as I misstated earlier, the mismatched services for women. You know, you, you bring up an interesting point in the, the, the maternal morbidity and mortality, and in fact, perinatal is, quite frankly, it's an appalling statistic in this country. Given the amount of money, it, it is the largest invested amount in healthcare in general, yet we see that as a primary indicator. And you're absolutely right. Um, you, you know, it's not just the woman, but the, the, the women tend to be at the nexus of health 
for the extended family being that chief health officer as an example, I thought that was a, a wonderful sort of analogy. Given that we've been doing this for all this period of time, what do we need to do? What are the elements of changing this beyond sort of creating a, a more female-centric set of solutions that are designed, you know, perhaps for men and women differently? Where do we go from here beyond that? It's incentives, right? It's, a, it's aligning the incentives to make the system work better. And right now, the reimbursement is driving a lot of the challenges, I think, in women's healthcare. So there's one payment that covers all of OB care, and it's very structured to say, here are the 13 things you have to do. Check those boxes. So providers, health systems, hospitals are, to, are incentivized to check those boxes. And where I think it's interesting is you're seeing a lot of these startups and technology and ventures are coming and, and funding that in-between space, right? That's where they're, where they're focusing their dollars is how do we support women in the in-between these 13 checkpoints that have to happen as part of the reimbursement. And so I think if you can bring those two things together, explore bundle payments, explore risk-based and episodes to make it so that the whole system can move in one direction or potentially expand that 13-point checklist to expand to include pelvic health, um, postpartum more fully, cover beyond 60 days after birth. If you can align those incentives correctly, I think you can be a lot more successful. But to me, that's number one. It's change the incentives, you change the path. Mm -hmm. I agree. And also tort reform is no joke either. So we have definitely a lot of wasted money on uh, liability insurance. And so there's got to be some tort reform for sure, OB. But the other thing I want to make sure we don't forget about is that women are the predominant patient in orthopedics, cardiovascular, cancer, neuro, mental health. I mean, we are greater than 60% in orthopedics where seven women are 70%. So those are considered the big money makers, but yet we don't have anything that is specific in most places for women. So we're not just little men. We manifest these things differently. In cardiovascular, I mean, the, the uh, incidence of symptoms and prevalence of different cardiac conditions is significant between women and men. So we really need to customize the care that is gender as well as culturally specific to women. You, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, from a, a, a clinical perspective, we talk about the typical presentation of myocardial infarction or, or heart attack, and it presents very differently. But I can tell you categorically in my training, which goes back, you know, longer than it should, we weren't taught any of that. It was just, you know, there was some variation from the classical central chest pain radiating down, but you don't see that in women. So it feels like this is not just about the, the payment stream and aligning that as, as you rightly assess, but it goes back to the education of the clinical professionals so that they become aware. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous in this discussion because I'm here as the man talking about women and, you know, their perception. And it's very difficult to insert myself into those shoes. Can we overcome that? Can we still have a sort of blended model of delivery or do we have to have female um, clinical professionals delivering care to, to, to women? 
I think that's a good point. I mean, I think women generally prefer women. Uh, that is shown in the data. But on the other hand, uh, you know, males, uh, a lot of the specialists are in may are men, uh, as opposed to the generalists that are more female across the medical fields. And so women are open as long as they get the very best of care and it's personalized care that's delivered appropriately to women. And uh, but I've had men who are not enlightened at all say to me, well, why do why are women five times more likely to have autoimmune diseases? Why are 70 percent of the orthopedic patients women? And I'm like, because being a female is a pre-existing condition. It, we are, it is genetically who and how we are. And uh, so I think educating the next generation of providers and, it, and, it, and it's really not so much if you're a male or a female provider, it's more of that education and understanding that looking at females, a different risk factor. And what does that mean in terms of caring for her, planning for her care, preventative care, uh, and not, not delaying getting her to the cath lab. We know that women are sent home or delay going in for a myocardial infarction and delay getting into the cath lab and die more frequently and have more morbidity and mortality. Well, shame on us. We, those are facts. Why are we not changing the way we care for these women? I think to add to that too, I think it would be helpful to, to borrow from the model that we see in behavioral health, where you've got behavioral health providers integrated into primary care, vice versa, right? And that's been really helpful and shown to work really well when you've got primary care providers who can walk down the hall and say to their behavioral health counterparts, I have a situation, how do you help me, right? So I think what we'd start to advocate for is having destination centers or having centers where you don't have OB out on its own little island, that's the women's clinic, that's over here but it's actually integrated. So you've got maybe rotating specialists or you've got specialists available that, that can connect with and, and have that sort of sounding space for providers to really collaborative. So as much as we can bring in collaborative care, I think across the, the disciplines, I think will really help advance women's, women's care mm -hmm. as a whole. And it was I agree. Really thanks for talking about. Yeah, I agree. And I, I see it two ways. One time, one way is if you've got a big medical home where women's health is adjacent and integrated in children's health, or I see like uh, one of my clients, OHSU and some of the National Women's Centers of Excellence that have their women base, but they bring in uh, the women's cardiac program, women's orthopedic right. programs, women's neuro, mental health. So it's either way, you can do it either way, but that integrated model of care, I think is critical to caring for women across the lifespan. You know, you bring up an interesting point, and I, I, I recall as these centers of excellence, you know, the women's health uh, that appeared, and I, I, I can even picture the building, but as you rightly point out, that was great, but it was essentially positioned away from the main hospital, which on the one hand, I thought, well, at the time, I remember thinking, well, that's great, you know, this is a focus, but what you're describing is that it needs to be incorporated and maybe this sort of, uh, you know, tacking it on the side, it's a little bit like security. It's always a, an afterthought and it needs to be incorporated at the outset. A and that sort of pushes me to my next point, which is around uh, career and the challenge of the career for many of the women going through this, one of the reasons, you know, you look at orthopedics as an example, very male dominated yet, you know, delivering care to a, a higher proportion of women. 
Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but a lot of it was the challenge of getting into that and the integration of that into a family life with, mm -hmm. you know, essentially general biology. Are we starting to see a move away and, and opportunities that will allow for better integration and incorporation of, you know, a broader spectrum of people in those specialties, do you think? Mm -hmm. I do. I, I really do. I'm seeing, like, I'm working with the Women's Heart Center, and they have 14 women cardiologists. They have women cardiovascular surgeons, women uh, cardiothoracic surgeons. So I do see it opening up. But I also, and I know Tessa would love to chat about this as well, is with the coverage of infertility services, women are planners, they're strategic planners, and they're freezing their eggs. So professional women are opting to have 30 year old eggs and they may be implanted later, but they've got young, healthy eggs, uh, literally frozen and waiting for when they decide they want to have children. So they're no longer limited by that biological clock. Take it away, Tessa. You're in that age group anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I kind of took that career question differently. Uh, Nick, I thought I was thinking more about it from the physician's point of view or from the clinician point of view and about um, you know, OBGYN is one of the highest burnout specialties. I mean, they are just, they're exhausted and it's not a specialty where it's, it's been really difficult to keep um, physicians in practice. And one of the reasons for that is that it's a unique practice in that it's like, you're doing the primary care piece, but you also have the surgical piece. And there just aren't that many providers that have that sort of call demands, in-clinic demands, and also surgical component. Like there just aren't that many clinicians that have that sort of split. And so it was resonating to me when you said bringing the women's center back closer to the hospital, right? Those are the sort of things that can actually help both from the, the patient point of view, but also from the clinician point of view, because then they're able to more easily transition between the two spaces, be in all those worlds and mm -hmm. help with their burnout as well. So, I mean, that's the other aspect of this too that I think mm -hmm. gets overlooked sometimes is, is just the burnout in that specialty is, is particularly acute. It, it, it's huge. And I think we're even having trouble filling our residencies yep. because of having about 50% of the medical school classes or more being female. So it is hard. And I'm seeing uh, working with like ACOG and MFM that uh, we're really starting to see a division. Like you said, it really is a primary care, a medical and a surgical specialty all in one. And so we're really starting to see career trajectories, but they have to be compensated. Back to your thought about compensation, they have to be incentivized and compensated so that some people just want to be working OB. Some people really just want to be surgeons and do laparoscopic and robotic surgery. Some people only want to do well women care, but then we've got to make sure that we equalize the value of that. And so that the compensation is clearly fair across those specialties. So I'm really seeing in the larger practices and the large um, IPAs, you're seeing a division of that and then productivity and compensation alignment around uh, that. And then that does help that burnout as well as laborists in the hospital, you know, yeah. and, and, and really laborists taking a more active role uh, and then using mid-levels for sure. That really yeah. helps as well. So it sounds like we really are moving the needle. We're starting to see more of this. How do we get the message out? Because it, it feels like that may be the case, but many of the people accessing care are not necessarily either aware or capable. Is it, is it a 
it, it's available, but it's not equally distrib distributed, or is it a function of people not knowing and needing to ask for it? I, I mean, it's both, right? Like I, I think about one of my favorite topics, which is pelvic pelvic care and, and continence care, right? It's it's not available. In many markets, it just doesn't exist. There's a huge demand for it, but you're going up against the Depends lobby, which is pretty strong. But there is no reason that anybody needs to wear diapers, right? You, you, can, you can fix that. But that service just doesn't exist because people don't know about it. So I think it's a little bit of both. I, mm -hmm. I agree. And I, yeah, I also, uh, yeah, I think that telehealth, this goes back to the telehealth thing and the digital thing. I think that is helping us. So I'm now seeing telehealth in the, the women's pelvic health field uh, and in reproductive endocrinology and women's cardiology uh, and so forth. So telehealth is helping us and maternal fetal medicine as well. So telehealth is helping us distribute those subspecialties with uh, in those general practices and helping those general practitioners to be able to provide those services that are so necessary like pelvic health and so forth. And then just sort of finally, just make, on, on that, I think there's the people who are making the decisions in the C-suite are so often disconnected from these, these needs. And so I think if you can, as me as a consultant, I often think about how can I make the business case? How can I bring forth the rationale to make this make sense to whoever's sitting in the C-suite so they actually want to invest in it, so they see the value in it? And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there is making a business case for women's health mm -hmm. and making that make sense to those who are in the decision-making and the investment seats. Mm -hmm. And, and, the, and, and as we started out with even to begin with, Nick, is that you said women make the decisions for the family. So if, if you are caring for the woman and her children, you're going to have healthier people, which is going to cost less, give us better outcomes. But we also know if you just look at a transactional uh, analysis, that if you get the woman and her family, the woman herself may contribute 100000 across her lifespan. If you get the family because you've uh, cared for her well, you're looking at 5 million plus, okay, added to your bottom line. So there is an economic case to be made in the C-suite for women's health investments. So 1.3 billion in terms of investment in women's health, a record breaking set of investments. I think that's introduced a level of competition that will inevitably drive this, I think you make a fantastic economic case. I mean, even if it was just for 50% of the population, if you want to define it that way, it's actually much more. It's probably driving much more of that because those are the individuals that will essentially direct care and you want them to be focused on you because they're getting great services in their specialized area. So overall, it feels like we're really turning the corner. We're seeing it. We're seeing it in the educational system expanding. We've got better compensation. Um, we're starting to see access. And in fact, telehealth is distributing that access. So overall, it feels like this is a, a turning point and it's exciting. Thank you, both of you, for, for joining me on the show today. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Nick. It's been great. So there is good news in addressing these issues. With 1.3 billion in funding poured into women's healthcare, focused on addressing the discrepancies in care and solutions provided, and reversing a healthcare indicator, maternal mortality, that should have us all very concerned with the trajectory of our system. It starts with the educational system that must adjust to the differences and change the way we care for women who are not just little men, 
but different in important and fundamental ways. Your better pill to swallow is not just adding women's services into your portfolio of solutions, but building them in as an integrated set of solutions and making them widely and uniformly accessible to the full population you serve. Recognize not only the differences necessary in treatment, but embrace the compelling economic business case for creating customized solutions for women who ultimately direct the care spending not just for themselves, but also for the vast majority of their family and extended family. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.